Vampire Slayer is 18 years old. Not the character, she's a tad older than that, but the TV show that was spawned from the not terribly successful movie of the same name. I haven't seen many articles or celebrations of this, so I decided to do my own little mini-celebration of a show that reignited my love of television as a medium. However, Buffy's birthday wasn't the thing that spurred this episode into being. What did was more the first season of Buffy Isn't That Good Really Brigade that seems to have popped up on the internet recently. Now, normally I pay these kind of things the same amount of time it takes to take a piss, and internet opinions, like mine, I suppose, are ten a penny. But this one bugged me. The first season of Buffy is, alongside seasons two and three, one of my favourite runs of television ever. To see people belittle after the fact gets my hackles up slightly, because no one thought it was bad at the time. Well, no one who actually watched it anyway, which was not a sizable amount of people. It was reviewed as being a tad silly, sometimes ridiculous, which it was, but the fact that it picked up a cult following amongst critics before it picked up its rabid fan base must say something about the quality of the show. I watched the first episode when it aired on satellite and cable channel Sky One on the 3rd of January 1998. Well, alright, that's not strictly true. My wife and I watched it the day after, having set the video recorder for it the night before. Yes, we had to set the video for it. Not the only technological difference between then and now that I'll mention as we go through. As we prepared to go out on this Saturday night, Angela asked me what I was taping. I told her. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She rolled her eyes and gave me the look, which all of us married slightly geeky types know very well. It would, over time, become one of her favourite shows. Sky One scheduled Buffy at 8pm on a Saturday night, a ridiculous time slot, and predictably the show tanked. Sky pulled the show from the schedule six episodes before the end of season two. A small but loyal band of fans who had made contact over message boards and email groups started to write to Sky asking for it to be reinstated. When this bore no fruit, we started writing to the BBC, which leads us to the second major technological difference. Back then, if a series wasn't bought by a network, we didn't see it. Nowadays, we can pretty much watch whenever we want, whenever we want to. However, in this instance, the BBC heeded the call and premiered Buffy on the 30th of December 1998 in an 8 o'clock slot where they stitched the two opening episodes, Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest, together to err as a double-length episode, and the series took off in a big way. It suffered slightly from scheduling. BBC Two aired the series in a 6.45 evening slot. Not the best time to show the show, but it worked with Buffy attracting the young and young at heart in equal numbers. Sky One then capitalised on this increased audience awareness and suddenly, and cynically, brought the show back in a better time slot where it also became one of the highest rated shows. The opening two-parter written by Joss Whedon is still really entertaining. There are traditionally two types of pilot episode. The first is a normal episode of the show, where the viewer is caught up with the characters and the show set up as we go along. The second is where the characters and the show's premise are introduced to the viewer as new, with the characters essentially going through what the audience goes through, meeting the others for the first time and learning the setup that we will follow week after week. Buffy, as would become traditional with Whedon's work, subverts both of these scenarios by being both types of pilot. 
Buffy Summers, having recently moved to Sunnydale, a small suburb in LA, is already aware of her status as the Vampire Slayer, and after an incident at her old school where she killed a nest of vamps by burning down the gym, she's trying to move on and put all that vampire slaying stuff behind her. Thus, we have a pilot where the main character knows her situation, but the rest of the characters in the audience don't. The main cast is excellent from the get-go, nailing the tone and pace of the show from the first moments, and it may be one of the best ensembles on 90s TV. Buffy is played with pep and huge gobs of appeal by Sarah Michelle Gellar, and she's ably supported by the excellent Anthony Stewart Head as Rupert Giles, Alison Hannigan as Willow Rosenberg, Charisma Carpenter as Cordelia Chase, Nicholas Brendan as Xander Harris, and Eric Balfour as Jesse. One of these things is not like the other. Yes, people who've seen Buffy will no doubt be aware that Jesse does not make it to the series, and here we see an early example of Whedon scripting an event that would hopefully shock the audience into thinking anything could happen. Originally, the plan was to put actor Eric Balfour in the opening credits so that the audience would think he was going to be a regular, and then, when killing him off in the middle of the show, the audience would be shocked and surprised. The Actors' Union basically informed Whedon that, should Balfour be put in the credits, he would be entitled to a contract and money for an entire season. And as such, the idea was dropped. Jesse doesn't make much of an impression, to be honest. He's just a carbon copy of Xander, and Balfour doesn't have quite the same ability to nail the fast-paced and stylized dialogue as well as the rest of the cast. As such, Jesse seems a bit more stilted and wooden than the others, and this was symptomatic of a problem that would occur in the first season. Whilst the main cast was frequently great, the supporting cast were often wooden and unconvincing. Jesse, in particular, is a nothing character, and it doesn't help that nobody seems to care when he dies. In a show that prided itself on small attentions to detail and continuity, it demonstrates how little impact Jesse made in that he will never, ever be mentioned again in the seven-year run of the series. For me, other than Geller, who owns every scene she's in, the standouts in the pilot are Head as Giles and Carpenter as Cordelia, both of whom would get expanded parts as the series went on. Both nailed the tone straight away, and whilst Head's career has been steady and solid, Carpenter never managed to exploit this star turn and develop her career. The rest of the acting varies from the competent, Mark Metcalf as the master, Brian Thompson as the lead vampire, Luke, and the delectable Julie Benz as Darla, who are all great, to refugees from the California Amdram scene. The direction by Charles Martin Smith is not great. There are too many extreme close-ups, scenes aren't blocked or staged very well, and he has a habit of having people walk into the camera for scene changes. But Whedon, being the control freak that he is, would soon start directing his own scripts. Part 2, The Harvest, is directed by John T. Kretschmer and is better, but still lacks Whedon's deft touch. Some scenes really do feel like an over-the-top cheap TV movie of a kind you'd see on the Horror Channel, and one can't help but think that this is down to the director perhaps taking the material a tad more seriously than Whedon would. As the plot unfolds, Buffy learns that not only is Sunnydale located on a hellmouth, explaining why all manner of weirdness can occur on a weekly basis, but that the King of the Vampires, the Master, is preparing for his ascension to the world above. This will be the overarching plot for the first season. The Master is ably played by Mark Metcalf, who seems to be cosplaying as Michael Stipe. For the most part, this is a textbook pilot episode, although it works better when screened as one double-length episode rather than in two parts. It's not quite as tight and snappy as subsequent episodes, but the characters are so well-drawn and archetypical that they feel real from the get-go. 
It's not a perfect pilot by any means, though. The score by Walter Murphy is perfunctory stuff, sounding like it was written for a Canadian TV movie rather than a moderately decently budgeted TV show. And it looks fuzzy, largely due to US television transferring an awful lot of those shows to videotape to make editing easier. It's also not without its fair share of cock-ups and mistakes, one of which was a result of Whedon not yet being involved in every aspect of the production. The best example of this is Angel's Wardrobe, which is a massive misstep. Earlier on in the pilot episode, it's established that Buffy can determine vampires simply from their dated dress sense, but earlier on she met Angel, played by David Boreanaz, who was decked out in a crushed velvet jacket and frilly collar. Yet this didn't set her senses off. Angel would adopt his all-black look later on, rather than this wannabe Lestat rip-off. Goofs and problems aside, Welcome to the Hellmouth does everything a pilot needs to do. It sets up the series, the characters and the situations, and still manages to entertain its audience. Buffy thwarts the Master's ascension, for now, but being in a Hellmouth, the town is, as Giles puts it, a centre for mystical convergence, and as such, the threats from not only vampires are far from over, which sets the series up nicely. Overall, the premise for the series is sound, and the scripting humorous and intriguing, holding the attention with whip-smart dialogue and well-developed characters rather than the plot, which is quite standard fur. Music also played a huge part in Buffy in the early days. The main theme by Nerf Herder sums the show up better than the score, starting out as a traditional horror theme before segueing into a more alt-rock track. Nerf Herder were brought to Whedon's attention by Alison Hannigan, who was quite the rock chick, apparently. Before we move on... Here's the theme. sums up the musical approach of the show, with the exception of the score, as I've mentioned. The music in Buffy was often a part of the show instead of just playing under scenes. The regular hangout for the kids within the show was the bronze, Sunnydale's only nightclub, which featured turns mostly by no-name jingly-jangly indie guitar bands, but this meant the music could be part of the moment as opposed to a forced emotional manipulation. This also gave the show some serious credibility. Whedon wanted to avoid having big names playing as he felt this would be unrealistic. As he said in one interview in SFX magazine, it's doubtful R.E.M. would play somewhere like the bronze and instead pulled his talent from the local scene, aided again by Alison Hannigan. As such, the music in Buffy that isn't the score tended to sound more unique than other shows of the era, even if a number of tracks used on Buffy would be used by other WB shows and would, coincidentally I'm sure, be a number of WB artists. The featured artist in the pilot was Sprung Monkey, and this is Believe from the album Swirl. Fills the mind. 
some interesting tidbits of trivia from this pilot episode that are worth noting before we move on to the series proper. It's based on Whedon's original script for the movie, for it was heavily rewritten by the director of the film and Donald Sutherland, and as such, certain events as described don't match the events of that film, but the series is to be commended for not being a reboot. Whedon also had an advantage in that the entire first season was filmed before a transmission date on the then-fledging WB network was announced. The WB then blinked and put the transmission back even further, although this did mean that Whedon could tinker with the show in the editing bay. He added scenes from future episodes into Buffy's dream sequences, giving the season a cohesiveness normally lacking in a show in its early days. The delay in US transmission ultimately meant that the series had its world debut in New Zealand. Nevertheless, the pilot does what it needs to do, sets out the premise of the show, sets up the characters, and establishes the overall tone of the piece. It also gave Whedon a chance to look at the first two episodes, see what worked and what didn't, and hone the show further for the series that followed. Whedon has voiced his displeasure with the pilot as a whole, feeling that he deferred to the directors too much over certain decisions that he wasn't comfortable with, but let go due to his inexperience. Going forward, he would exhibit far more creative control, feeling that if an episode bore his name, it should be the best work he was capable of. Even if there were mistakes, he wanted them to be his mistakes. As such, he would involve himself with casting, rewriting, set design, music and costuming to an almost obsessive degree. Before we move on, there is an interesting artefact that is well worth checking out. Prior to the pilot, Whedon and the cast made a 25-minute presentation to sell the show to the network, and all the cast performed in it for free. It's pretty much the same basic plot, albeit shorter, although Willow is played by an actress called Riff Regan rather than Alison Hannigan, and Angel is nowhere to be seen. It's never been officially released, but it's out there and well worth a watch. Overall, the verdict on Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest are that it's an enjoyable and witty piece of television, doing what the pilot needs to, and it does it well. It's not the series at its best, but watching this one can see how influential Buffy was on Roswell, Smallville, Charmed, etc., that all owe their existence to the Slayer. With the pilot complete and edited episode 3, which is therefore more focused and overall a better production, the episode centres around something that as a Brit I had little to no knowledge of, the importance of high school sports on the US and the pressure foisted upon kids to compete in these events. However, this being Buffy, there's far more going on than just that. The plot concerns Amy Madison, played by Elizabeth Ann Allen, whose mother, Catherine, is all kinds of obsessed with Amy making the cheerleading squad. Amy is stressing out over this, and one by one, various members of the cheerleading competition fall by the wayside due to unfortunate maladies. Cordelia is blinded, others are burnt or rendered speechless, etc. So far, so Charlie X, but Giles learns that this is the work of a hidden Sabrina, and the Slayerettes pull out all the stops to locate the source of the witchcraft before Buffy, Amy's latest target, succumbs herself. It turns out that the real villain is Amy's mum, who has possessed Amy's body, and Giles must save the day with Doctor Strange-style hoodoo. Covering topics such as parental abuse and negligence, the high-pressure world of teen sport and the eternal quest for youth, which is an absolutely blinding episode. Dismissed by some fans for being a monster of the week show as opposed to the mythology or arc-driven, I frequently find myself preferring monster of the week episodes. Supernatural, The X-Files, even Buffy on occasion, lost their way when it came to the mythology shows, as they frequently got bogged down with their own self-importance, whereas self-contained stories are often more effective. Such it is with Witch, which is funny, dramatic and clever, while still featuring lots of scantily clad girls in cheerleading outfits. 
The laboured pacing and mannered direction of the two-part pilot has gone, and this is much faster paced and better looking. The writer, Dana Reston, although with an uncredited rewrite from Whedon, does a good job juxtaposing Buffy and Amy's home life as children of single parents, with both parents being distracted by their admittedly hectic lives and desire to claim back their youth. The reshuffling of the show and the schedule is noted here, with the cheerleading tryouts clearly being in 1996, despite the show not erring until March 1997 in the US. The knock-on effect of these changes will result in Buffy being given three different birth dates to keep her at age 16 in this first season. There's also a minor goof in that Giles states that this is his first spell casting, something flatly contradicted in the second season when we start to learn more about Giles' backstory. Still, on any other show, which would have been throwaway, and we'd have never seen Amy or Catherine again, but Amy will become a recurring character later on, and we'll even see Catherine again. Kind of. The denouement of the show sees Catherine's spell backfire, and her mind cast into a cheerleading trophy of herself kept in the school's display cabinet. This is the first Twilight Zone-style twist of the show. There will be three in the first season. This will get a callback in a late second season episode, where a character will stir at the trophy and wonder why it looks like its eyes follow him around the room. Which is a great episode, kicking off the series proper in fine style. The cast are excellent and have the rhythms of the dialogue down, the scripting is intelligent and doesn't look down on the genre, and the acting from the non-regulars of a generally high standard than the pilot. Cordelia still manages to steal every scene she's in and gets all the best lines, though. There was no featured music in this episode, so here's Kim Ritchie with Let the Sun Fall Down from a later episode. It originally appeared on her eponymous debut album. Close the door and leave the world behind you. Open the window and listen to the breeze blow through the pines. Take a deep breath. What more can you do? Whisper you love by 
Episode 4 teaches Pet embraces the show's B-movie leanings wholeheartedly, which was something I always liked about Buffy. It was unashamedly genre. In this show, a substitute teacher turns out to be a human praying mantis, luring unsuspecting high school boys to allure and biting their heads off. It's down to Buffy to save Xander from this grisly fate. Again, whilst the main plot to Teacher's Pet is a tad silly, the writer David Greenwald, who, along with Whedon, was the writing staff of season one, infuses the show with wit and intelligence and no small amount of pathos. The death of Dr. Gregory, instigated by the praying mantis woman Natalie French, is handled sensitively as opposed to being a throwaway, and Buffy and Willow's genuine sadness at his passing is well written and well played. In a nice touch, Dr. Gregory was in Witch, albeit briefly, so this doesn't feel like a TV death of someone we've never seen before. Mostly this is a Monster of the Week show again, but it's a good one, fleshing out Xander's character a little bit more and establishing his jealousy of Angel that will reoccur throughout the series. Speaking of, Angel reappears here and is now wearing clothes that don't signpost his origins. He gives Buffy a leather jacket that she will continue to wear throughout the season. The Twilight Zone ending this week has the camera pan down to a collection of eggs in the closet, presumably, laid by the praying mantis woman. But this plot point was never followed up in the series, and presumably the eggs were destroyed when Sunnydale High School blows up at the end of season three. An interesting note for science fiction TV fans. When Natalie appears in her mantis form, the special effects guys use the same model that they used to play Negrath on Babylon 5. It's a very limited puppet, so it wasn't used very much on B5, and even here, it's kept in the dark, and any footage of it moving tends to be sped up. Featured bronze band this episode was Superfine, and this is Already Met You, as featured on the official Buffy soundtrack album. The first date's the worst date, it's hard to know just what to do. When I take you to dinner, you don't eat, you just play with your food. Familiar about every word you say. It's hard to believe this happened again. I already met you. I already met you. You're like my last girlfriend, the actual girlfriend I had before her. I take you to my apartment and vanish just south of Beirut. Tell me you're bored and you don't like the color of my shoes And the picture gets clearer With every word you say It's hard to believe This happened
boy on the first date picks up the mythology arc again after a few episodes off. The master returns, still stuck in his back cave thanks to Buffy preventing his ascension, and whilst he waits for his next window of opportunity, he has discovered an old prophecy related to the Anointed One, a being of power who the Slayer will not know. Giles is also aware of this prophecy and has Buffy investigate. However, Buffy is distracted by Owen, a huge stiff of a boy that she is inexplicably attracted to. This episode lacks the metaphorical context of the other shows, but instead chooses to focus on the more superhero aspects of the series that have so far just bubbled in the background. Giles makes frequent references to Buffy's secret identity, and she has to hide her true nature from Owen at every opportunity. It seems to me that the cat would be somewhat out of the bag, given that Buffy saved two people from certain death in front of scores of witnesses in which... But if I can buy that Sunnydale High School is still open after students find a decapitated teacher in the cafe, I can buy that Buffy's actions have largely been ignored. Angel also makes a cameo in this episode, and it's clear that writers of Obdes Hotel and Dean Batali are using Owen as an angel standing, given that he's brooding, tall and taciturn, and are clearly setting Angel up as being more than just a dispenser of exposition. Never Kill a Boy is a fun episode, hurt by the fact that Owen, played by Chris Wheel, is straight out of the central casting folder labelled Handsome But Dull. The viewers never buy what Buffy sees in him, let alone that he's been fought over by Buffy and Cordelia. Nevertheless, the episode has a ton of good lines. The acting by everyone is stellar, especially Tony Head, who was magnificent in this one, delivering every one of his lines like the expert he is. The ending is also another Twilight Zone-style twist in the tale, as it is revealed that Giles and Buffy didn't stop the Anointed One like they thought they did, but instead the Master has him, and he's actually a very small child. Velvet Chain are the band playing in the bronze this week, and this is strong from the imaginatively titled release, The Buffy EP.
the pack is routinely dismissed as one of the silliest episodes of the run, but I find it quite dark and chilling, and it really runs with both the B-movie feel of the first season and Whedon's idea of using metaphor for teenage problems and issues. When Sunnydale High School students are on a trip to the local zoo, a bunch of mean kids we've never seen before, and we'll never see again, are picking on a smaller kid near the restricted hyena sanctuary. Xander intervenes and all but the small kid are possessed by the mystical hyena and take on the characteristics of that animal, hunting in packs, preying on the weak, etc. Buffy and Willow notice the change in Xander immediately, but it's only when the pack eat the school mascot, a small pig named Herbert, and then turn on Principal Fluty that Giles believes something is afoot. His investigations lead him back to the sanctuary, where Giles learns the zookeeper was responsible for all of it, and the kids interrupted his experiment to say he was supposed to be the one who took on the hyena's power. Said out loud like that, this is a tad daft, although no dafter than any number of other horror or science fiction stories, in that its central theme is animal possession, and the animals are hyenas. But this is a genuinely disturbing and grim episode. Not only does the pig die, and as per the rules of Hollywood, you never kill the animal, but the pack hunt and kill Principal Flutie in a scene that is actually very well shot. Ken Lerner, who played Flutie, plays this scene as a mixture of utter shock and complete disbelief that this is happening to him, and his incredulity makes it work, as does Hannigan and Geller's reaction upon learning of the death later. In fact, throughout the piece there is a feeling of doom and foreboding, as if attempting to make up for the silliness of the central idea. Of course, that idea is only here to service the famous Buffy metaphor, in this case, bullies that have to have hangers on to make them feel self-important, and these guys are not only bad actors, but given their unimportant position in the overall storyline, we don't really care about them over much. Presumably this is so we don't think about how traumatised they were when they come out of the possession and realise they've just become cannibals. They were spending an awful lot of money on therapy in future years. The real breakout star of this one, though, is Nick Brandon as Xander, who excels in his role, really selling his character's descent into being a real bastard. The writers learned early on that if you want the audience to hate somebody, you have them be mean to Willow, and Xander's victimisation of her and his attempt to pull Buffy are quite effective in conveying his dark side. Cordelia's absence is odd, as having her clique be the possessed, or at the very least, having her be attracted to Dark Xander would have been interesting, especially given where the series goes in later years, but for whatever reason she's MIA this week. The dialogue is as brilliant as ever, particularly Anthony Stewart Head as Giles, whose reaction to Buffy's description of Xander's ales is a magnificently pithy, he's become a 16-year-old boy. Of course you'll have to kill him, but to his credit he's the one who ultimately figures it all out. If there is a complaint, it's that there isn't enough plot here for the full running time, as proven by a scene in the middle where Xander and the pack wander the courtyard of Sunnydale High to the strains of Job's Eyes by far, a snippet of which I will play for you here.
As you can hear from the song, the scene goes on far too long and reminds us of 90210, which regularly took a break from the action to plug a record. Buffy's better than that normally. Still, the pack is far better than its reputation would suggest and is actually well overdue a re-evaluation. It's the episode where the audience realised that the show was willing to kill off recurring characters and it wasn't afraid to go to the dark side of the story to find its purpose. One of the more notable episodes in the first season is up next, Angel, which finally dishes the dirt on David Bodianaz's enigmatic character. There's a ton of new backstory here that will continue to be developed, not only on Buffy, but on Angel's own show. We learn that Angel is not only a vampire, but the most fearsome and dangerous vampire that ever lived, and get some juicy hints about his past life with Darla. Most surprising of all is that Borianaz finally gives an adequate performance. The romance between Slayer and Vampire, kind of poetic really, as Giles points out, is handled remarkably well with Geller at her most pouty and adorable and Borianaz at his most Cro-Magnon, what with his sloped brow and hunched shoulders. There's also lots of eye candy from both Geller, still not the stick insect she will become in later seasons, and Darla, played by Dexter's Julie Benz, rocking the Catholic schoolgirl Luke because she thinks that's what Angel is into now. Angel's background is fascinating. As Angelus, the killer with the angelic face, he cut a bloody swath through Eastern Europe, and he did it with a song in his heart and a smile on his face, before being cursed with his soul that caused him to relive the deaths and murders. It's a very tortured Marvel Comics-style character, and his popularity skyrocketed from this point forward and led to one of the series' best story arcs in Season 2, and ultimately his own spin-off. However, all of this can't hide the fact that this isn't a very well-put-together episode. There are great scenes, there is some great dialogue, there's some great acting, particularly Geller, covering for Borianaz's inexperience, Ben's, and the always dependable Anthony Stewart head. But scenes go on for just that split second too long, and the direction by Scott Brazil is all in extreme close-up, which gets really irritating after a while. Killing Darla is also a huge misstep, one they would rectify later when they resurrected her for Angel's own series. Whether her death here was due to alleged backstage clashes between Benz and Alison Hannigan is merely unsubstantiated rumour. Still, it's an important episode, and these little irritations don't distract from the character work. David Greenwald, who wrote this one, went on to work on Angel, and the script has the usual witty moments and fun set pieces. Geller and Borianaz practically ooze sexual tension throughout, but Greenwald has Xander make some good points, even if they are fuelled by his own jealousy. Angel is still a vampire, and at some point he'll snap. This is excellent foreshadowing, and emphasised in the scene with Buffy's mum, where Angel has to fight his nature and not feed off her bleeding neck. As an aside, this episode freaked our eldest son, Michael, out on first viewing. Then, only three years old, he just happened to come downstairs, having had a bad dream, and walked into the living room just as Angel's face turned vampire. I swear his scream woke up the neighbourhood. This episode ends with Sophie Zelmani's I'll Remember You, a portion of which I will play for you here. When you are asleep, I can hear you breathe now. Your breath is deep. But before I go, look at you one last time.
internet critics but preferred by me willow falls for an unseen email pen pal on the internet only for it to turn out to be an age-old demon moloch the corrupter accidentally scanned into the computer system during a routine cataloging of books giles and the computer science teacher jenny calendar a techno pagan must figure out how to wrest the demon from the internet before it gains physical form and kills willow Either the funniest episode of the season, or the most dated, depending on who you talk to. This is the most dated, sure, but it's not quite the funniest. That's still to come. The general concept of the episode, internet predators preying on the lonely and the vulnerable, has actually become more prevalent in the years since this episode was made, making it quite prescient in its approach. But the execution is sadly archaic by today's standards. For a show as tuned in as Buffy, it still makes the same mistakes a lot of TV shows make in how information is shared, and there is a certain naivete in how they portray computers. There are a couple of rather silly technology errors, such as how Willow's scanner read all of the pages of the book when it was one of those handheld jobbies that's clearly not wide enough to scan the whole page, and there are some rather stilted performances by the non-regulars. There's still a bit to enjoy, though. For one, Buffy was a shocking amount of really tiny skirts coupled with some very tight vest tops, which, whilst inappropriate for a high school girl, are quite entertaining when you're of a certain age. One can see why, though, starting in season two, Sarah Michelle Geller started asking for some wardrobe changes. For two, it's a really very, very funny episode, with some funny sight gags, clever wordplay and smart one-liners. It's also nice to see Willow get angry at the end and not have to be rescued, although it's still Buffy, with Giles and Jenny Callender's help, who saves the day. Speaking of, Jenny Callender, played with great delight by Robia Lamorte, is a great addition to the cast, and that she is capable of going toe-to-toe with the always sublime Tony Head makes her want to watch. At the end of the episode, Giles has a speech about how learning of information should be a tangible thing, something earned, and Head completely nails it. He was frequently this show's unsung hero, and I think this was only realised after his departure as a regular at the end of season five. iRobot Eugene isn't prime Buffy, but it's campy, funny, clever, and dopey in equal measure, and it shows how this show was different to the other X-Files knockoffs of the time, in that it takes a quite preposterous idea, but plays it straight while still having just the right amount of fun with it. Buffy was never afraid to poke fun at itself, while still giving you characters that you cared about and believed in, and this episode is textbook in that regard. 
The puppet show features that hoary old horror movie cliché, the possessed ventriloquist dummy. As usual, this is turned on its head by having the dummy not be the evil entity the Scooby Gang are after. Rather, he's an old demon hunter forced to live his life out as a dummy, thanks to an ancient curse. Similar to Angel in that regard. His only hope for salvation lies in his killing of the demon that cursed him. That demon is here at Sunnydale High, seeking a brain and a heart, and with students already turning up dead, it's up to Buffy and the Scoobies to save the day. Now this is the funniest episode of the season. The teaser alone is hysterical, with Giles forced by the new principal to take a more active role in school life, and therefore forced to audition people for the talent show. Anthony Head, always the show's secret weapon, is sublime in the opening, and he plays the comedy of Giles' exasperation beautifully, and does it all with facial expressions and the way he simply takes off his glasses. Masterful. Of course, Buffy, Xander and Willow are there to mock, and are told in no uncertain terms that they too will take part by Principal Snyder. After all, school events are not for the mocking. Snyder is expertly played by Deep Space Nine's Armand Shimmerman, and he's perfect in the role. As the plot unfolds, though, the humour gives way to more serious topics. We find out that the owner of the dummy, Morgan, has brain cancer, which adds some melancholy to an otherwise silly episode. And once again, we marvel at how well this show dances between light comedy and dark drama. The dummy, named Sid, is also a wonderfully written exploration of light and dark. In the light side, he's horny as hell, having been trapped in a wooden body for over 50 years, and he flirts outrageously with every girl in his vicinity, especially Buffy. But there's added pathos when we learn that Sid wants to kill this demon so it's over for both it and him. Buffy's realisation that this means death for Sid, his body long since crumbled to dust, is poignant and sad, but underplayed just enough as to be relatable. When he does accomplish his goal, at the end, we actually feel sorry for this block of wood. It probably goes without saying that Cordelia is extremely funny in this show, be it singing The Greatest Love of All, or her distraught behaviour over the death of the first dancer, which she manages to make all about her. Charisma Carpenter displays her ample comedy chops once again. There's a couple of minor plot goofs, such as how Sin manages to walk all the way to Buffy's house in such a short span of time without being seen, but nothing detracts from what is really a wonderful little episode. Funny, sad, and a lot of fun. There's even a scene played out over the end credits, the only time Buffy would ever do this, where we get to see Buffy, Xander, and Willow's stage show. What makes the wooden performances especially funny is that Giles watches the whole spectacle through his fingers. The next episode, Nightmares, takes a step back to the overall Master Anointed One storyline, but crosses it with the hokey old Nightmares Are Coming True plot, and as such doesn't really satisfy when a child, Billy Palmer, is hospitalised, nightmares start to manifest as reality in Sunnydale. As usual, Giles figures out the whys, Buffy sorts out the wherefores, and we learn that the kid was abused by his Little League coach. Episodes like this are supposed to enlighten and inform the audience with insights into the characters and their darkest fears, and the episode scores moderately well in this regard. Some are funny. Cordelia apparently thinks a bad her day is the worst thing that could ever happen to her, and Willow's fear of public singing is mentioned again. Some of the dreams are heartbreaking. Buffy's dad telling Buffy in no uncertain terms that she was to blame for her parents' divorce. There's also one really good cathartic moment where Xander punches a clown out. But despite some great scenes and wonderful dialogue, Nightmares doesn't really hold the attention as an episode. The Master, trapped as he is in his Batcave, is an ineffectual villain, and he can't really threaten Buffy like Darla and Luke could, but sadly the show's already killed them off, so he's ultimately rendered rather impotent. 
The fact that he emerges in a nightmare scenario isn't really scary either, as we know it's a nightmare scenario rather than reality. This ultimately renders the episode rather worthless. Also, we spend too much time in the early part of the show with useless characters like Wendell, who, yes, is our gateway into the story, but once we know about Billy, he just gets forgotten about. Giles' nightmare, his inability to read and his fear of failing Buffy are excellent though, played brilliantly as usual by Tony Head, but the episode moves in fits and starts and and feels like a really good 30 minute show padded out to 42 minutes. Angel doesn't make an appearance so there's no furthering of his plot, the master is useless and the anointed one is boring so it all doesn't really add up to a successful instalment. It isn't skippable, though. There's some good foreshadowing in the first nightmare Buffy has that plays into the idea that the Slayer has prophetic dreams, and there are hints about how the final confrontation with the Master will go in the season finale. The inclusion of Buffy's dad, Hank, in his first appearance in the series is also moderately important, even though he only appears in a handful of episodes going forward. The scenes with the Master give it some weight and some importance, and the overall story arc is mentioned, but... Ultimately, this episode doesn't gel. It isn't as important as it thinks it is, and even the addition of the child abuse subplot isn't developed thoroughly. There is a great mistake in it, though. After learning Buffy was born in both 1979 and 1980 in iRobot Eugene, here we learn she was actually born in 1981. She's a bit young to be lying about her age. Taking the idea that if you treat somebody as invisible, they become invisible, a plot that Tom DeFalco also used in his Spider-Girl comic in the 90s, and using it to discuss the plight of the outcast and how it's possible for even the most popular of us to feel alone in a crowd, Out of Sight, Out of Mind is a decent enough episode that takes a little bit too long to get where it's going. The quite slight idea that Marcy Ross was ignored so much at school, even by the teachers, that she finally becomes transparent, is padded out with Buffy's feelings of alienation after leaving her last school and the fleshing out of the Cordelia role, with some insights into why she acts as she does. In fairness, it's these character beats that are the most successful part of the episode. Again, Marcy's just a guest star, so we don't really care about her that much, especially as the script gives no hints about her private life or her parents. But the development of Cordelia is much appreciated, and a signifier of where both this series and the spin-off will take her. Perhaps realising there was more to actress Charisma Carpenter, Cordelia will undergo the biggest character arc of any character on either show, until Wesley Wyndham Price arrives anyway, becoming truly selfless and heroic as the shows mature. Sadly, all of this was undone by a truly horrible sabotaging of her character in Angel's fourth season, but at least here we start to see there's a lot more to Queen C than we previously believed. Her conversation with Buffy, where they both see that they have a lot in common, is a touching character beat, ably portrayed by both actresses. Something else this episode does with success is quantify Buffy's loneliness. A lot of these teen shows cast handsome actors and beautiful actresses as outcasts, geeks and nerds, and just expect us to believe it. But here Whedon takes time to show exactly how Buffy feels, having been the popular kid at her previous school, and now being one of those outcasts she probably didn't even pay much attention to back then. Her being the slayer, as with all good superheroes, comes at a price. When dealing with the invisible girl, the effects are competent rather than groundbreaking, even if Marcy casts no shadow. Written by Ashley Gable from a story by Whedon, there are the usual great Buffy lines. I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say, huh, being a favourite, but it's the character beats and the setup for the next episode that make this one work. 
In one of these subplots, Angel locates an ancient book for Giles, the Pergamon Codex, that apparently reveals all about the Master's plan for Ascension, a story beat that will come into play in the next episode, and the Giles-Angel interplay is very well done. Ultimately, though, this is a bit of a shaggy dog story. The series will never follow up on its ending, where we learn the FBI are taking these invisible kids and training them to perform political assassinations, and it's really all about setting up Cordelia's ultimate redemption and establishing a relationship between Angel and Giles. Not a bad show by any means, but not one of the best. The season finale, Prophecy Girl, brings everything to a head in a tight, taut and incredibly effective and well-constructive episode that manages to tie up the many different plot threads that have been bubbling along since the show's inception. Angel brings the Pergamon Codex to Giles, who to his horror learns that the Master will rise and the Slayer will die. It's difficult to know where to begin with this absolutely astounding and assured 45 minutes of television, a rare example of almost everything working, with only the score, which still feels like it belongs in a cheap Canadian TV movie, letting the side down. This was the first episode both written and directed by Joss Whedon, and probably the first time Buffy really represented his vision of what the show could be. It's a lean script, neatly tying up all the loose ends of the storylines, with some fine directorial flourishes and some magnificent performances from the regulars, with the exception of Borianaz, who, once not being as stiff as he was at the beginning of the season, still had a fair ways to go. Standout moments are many, from Buffy's plaintive cry of, I'm 16, I don't want to die, to Willow's discovery of the dead bodies in the student break room, to Xander's rejection from Buffy when he asks her out, to Cordelia taking another step towards maturity when she helps Willow and Jenny Callender escape the vampire infestation, to Buffy's kick-ass reaction to the master upon his discovery that she still lives, and it's all balanced against the normality and mundanity of the student body's fascination with the school dance. I said that almost everything works, and it's true that for the first two-thirds this is sublime TV, but the budget string show in the last arc with the final confrontation between Buffy and the Master being slightly subpar. However, Buffy was a low-budget TV show to begin with, so this is a minor complaint. Besides, we're so invested with the characters at this point that it barely matters. After a lull in the music stakes, Jonathan Brooks' inconsolable tracks a major scene in this episode. Here is a portion of it, because it's six minutes long. See that you saw 
The series was a mid-season replacement and not a huge hit when it debuted. As such, Prophecy Girl could have been the last ever episode, so it's a surprise to watch it now and realise Whedon left a lot here to pick up on in later episodes. I really quite enjoyed watching this first season again. There are a number of rough parts to the season, as there are with any new show, but this is far from a failure, and the series almost has its act together from the get-go, with only a few bum notes in the pilot and a few unsatisfactory episodes thereafter. Everything that would ultimately make this series fly is here from the very beginning. It's available on Netflix and DVD, and I don't know if it's ever going to get a Blu-ray release, but it's well worth checking out if you're of a mood. Here's the breeders with the version of the Buffy theme. before we wrap this one up your podcast no I said that wrong didn't I you podcast the songs that made the whole world sing or hum which is from Chris Franklin hello Andy hello Christopher I loved this episode so much I listened to it twice well that's high praise indeed I don't know if I've ever listened to a podcast twice uh Chris continues, it works as a podcast episode and a mixtape that would make Star-Lord envious. I'll save you the point-by-point breakdown on each, but needless to say, I love a good chunk of what you chose for this list. Of course, I should point out, obviously I'm a professional at this, that Chris is referring here to the second soundtrack episode that I did, because I'm nothing if not a slave to mediocrity by doing sequels to episodes. Uh, Chris continues, as fairly recent converts to hoovenism... I don't even know if that's a word. Our family came into the Doctor's adventures while Smith was wrapping things up, but man, I am the Doctor was indeed the pitch-perfect song to go with Smith's quirky bombasticness. Again, I don't know if that's not a word, but it's great. I still miss the guy on this tune. The music from the 60s Spidey cartoon still runs in my head, especially when I dig out my old Marvel Tales reprints of the Lee Ditko days. The theme song is just perfect, and they've never come close to replacing it. It is to Spidey what John Williams' theme is to Superman. I'm with you on the Batman-Superman adventures theme, the perfect blend of both characters. Michael Bradley uses it on his Superman-Batman podcast, oddly enough. It's probably appropriately enough, really. My mum would usually get up and leave the room before the Lonely Man end theme to the Incredible Hulk played, says Chris. She'd well up every time if she sat through it. But then she'd cry over Hallmark card commercials. The Flash theme is similar to Elfman's Batman work, but that locomotive feeling to it says Flash. Still a favourite of mine. And nothing will make my wife Cindy squeal like a little girl like hearing the Wonder Woman theme. It's why I used it so much in our recent Supermates episode covering the show and recent comic adaptation. Plug. 
See, I didn't do a point-by-point, point, although I came close. Great episode, as always. Thanks for giving me an awesome soundtrack for my day at work, Chris. Well, you're very welcome, Chris. I was a bit weary, weary, weary. Weary means I'm tired, doesn't it? I was a bit weary of doing the sequel to the TV themes one, but it actually seems to have gone down better than the first one, which is a shame, because I, I liked the first one, but, you know. Maybe it's the Empire Strikes Back. I'll do Return of the Jedi next, and everyone will that I included um, songs about Ewoks. Another email about the Palace Teletunes was from Sean Engel, my good chum, who I host Listen to the Prophets with, which is a Deep Space Nine podcast available here on 2TrueFreaks.com. You should go and check that out, because we have a lot of fun on that show with uh, Sean and me and Paul Spataro. Dear Andy, I just wanted to write a quick thank you for your latest Palace episode on your favourite TV themes and songs, sci-fi edition. From the kitschy disco stylings of the Space 1999 theme to the bombast of I Am The Doctor, your choices touched upon some of the greatest themes from all of the best genre TV. As an aside, I have added the episode as one of my permanent podcasts that I keep in my iTunes library. Many podcasts that I love are very ephemeral. As soon as I listen to it, regardless of how much I enjoy it, it vanishes back into the cloud. So far, the Palace episode is among an elite few music-themed episodes that I feel the need to be accessed again and again. First is Scott Gardner's Independence Day episode, which always gets a listener on the 4th of July. Second is Tom Panarese's Christmas Countdown, with some of the best Christmas songs out there, Furry Tale of New York included. And now this Palace episode, in my estimation, a worthy companion. Looking forward to the next show, as well as our continuing bi-weekly talks about the red-headed stepchild of the Star Trek franchise. All the best, Sean. Well, that's... um illustrious company, Sean. I don't feel worthy, to be honest. Um, thank you very much for the two people that emailed about that one. Only you two emailed about it, so maybe it went down well with you, I don't know. As long as you enjoy, as long as you two enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it, that's all that matters, isn't it? Uh, next time on the Palace of Glittering Delights, I've got no idea. It's a couple of episodes that I've got half written. One for Lewis and Clark, and one for that Blake Seven one still bubbling along. And you know, I've also picked out tunes for a um, film themes episode, but I may let that that one go along for a bit as well because you need a bit of a gap between these things. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this. I hope I've encouraged you to go and check out Buffy the Vampire Slayer's first season. Ignore the internet. Ignore it. Listen to me, who's on the... In, yeah, that didn't really work, did you? Don't forget, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you have something to say. And don't forget to also check out other podcasts on 2TrueFreaks.com. They're all worth listening to. And if you want to buy something from Amazon, why don't you click on that Amazon link that's on the 2TrueFreaks.com page? Because then we get a kickback from that. It doesn't cost you anything, but it keeps the lights on. And all those great podcasts that you love so much get to continue which I think is a bonus for all of us. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.